I don't know if I told you about this show. It's called Raised by Wolves. But the second season of it just came out. It's Raised by Wolves 2. Is it a movie? No, it's a series. Okay. But it's basically living in 3099, okay? It's (laughs) very different. And it really made me think, like, all the stuff that they're doing in that show. I'm like, could this really be possible? What are they doing? They're using, like, droid robot things, but they look like people. And they're able to do all of these biological functions. And it reminded me... Of where we saw that pig heart transplant story a couple weeks ago. Do you remember? Yes, I do remember. And that kind of blew me away. Because I remember back in the day when they put the ear on the back of the rat and that was really big. Yes, that was in all the textbooks. Yes, but putting a pig heart into a homo sapien. Right. (laughs) I was like, man, we are really making leaps and bounds in our lifetime. I thought Raised by Wolves was $3,099, but maybe it's (laughs) $20,099. Maybe it's closer than I thought. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to Dope Labs, a weekly podcast that mixes hardcore science, pop culture, and a healthy dose of friendship. TT, I know I mentioned that I saw a pig heart transplant and that it feels like we are living in the year 3000, that sci-fi is upon us. But I feel like I'm really blown away. Like, how did we get here with all these new transplants and all of this technology? That wasn't the only one I saw. That's the only one I can remember right now. I think we got to get to the bottom of it. Absolutely. This week, we're talking about organ transplants. Specifically, we really wanted to know more about the process of getting approved for a transplant and how transplants actually work. Let's get into the recitation. Let's start with what we know. I feel like everything that I know about transplants is based off of what I've seen in movies and television. I think that's fine. Is it? I think that's an okay starting point. Okay, Because then we can figure it out. Well, now I feel empowered. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that I think I know is that getting a transplant is not as easy as saying that I need this new organ. There is a process. You have to see a number of doctors and then be put on a list. Mm Mm-hmm. I think considering that list, sometimes getting a transplant is easy, though. Some people get it Mm. from family members, but some people can't match with their family members. So Mm. I don't know a lot about the matching process. I know sometimes it's easier, you know, if you have family members who match with you. Mm -hmm. But I got to save this for the next section because I don't know how you match. (laughs) One of the things that I know is that not all transplants are created equal. And so getting a heart transplant 
and getting a kidney transplant are two very different beasts. The other thing I know is that there are a lot of rumors about transplants and the Mm. medical system. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most damaging things that has happened when it comes to organ transplants is the myth and rumor that went around that if you put that you were an organ donor on your driver's license, that the paramedics wouldn't try to save you. Do you remember this? Oh my gosh, yes, I remember this. And I hate to say it, friend, but I was actually one of those people who believed it for a little while. That's all right. (laughs) You were not alone. But it it is just that. It's a myth, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this page from Penn Medicine, so the University of Pennsylvania, the Perelman School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And they're saying that you would have to be in the hospital on a ventilator and then pronounce brain dead in order to donate your organs. So it's not even that your organs are harvested if you're in a car accident. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That myth plays on people's fears of not having adequate care. But there are so many additional steps before you get to the donation of your organs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another myth is that your family will be charged if you donate organs. I've never heard that one. But I can understand why people would think that. Because mm-hmm, it's an additional process, right? Absolutely. In the, the medical care system, it feels like a black box. Sometimes you go to the doctor or you have to rush to the hospital. And next thing you know, you have this huge bill and you don't know where these charges came from. You don't know how mm-hmm. you're going to pay for it. So I can definitely understand where that confusion comes from. So what do we want to know, though? What I want to know is how do they determine whether or not somebody is able to receive a transplant? Because I know, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I see on TV That there are some folks who, you know, they get a transplant and their body rejects it or something like that. I want to know what are the criteria that doctors are looking for to determine whether or not someone is able to get a transplant? Yes. And along those same lines, are those criteria the reason the waiting lists are so long? Why are there 90,000 people waiting for a kidney? but then a little over 10,000 for other organs. Is it related to like the difficulty of replacing the organ, the surgery, the tools that are required, the cost? I'm just curious about like why the lists are so long. And were they always this long or is this like a backup from, you know, delays in our medical system? Right, that's a good question. I think another thing that we're both curious about is, (laughs) because we always are interested in it, and that is new technology. So what is the new technology and innovations in transplant sciences? Yeah, I'm sure they're not doing it the way they always used to. No, they can't be. Everything I know about how transplants work is pretty much based on John Q. You remember that movie? Yes, that's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I know it's... I don't know if it was accurate, but that's what I feel like I know. Denzel was young in that movie. Mm -hmm. so Young Denzel. I'm expecting some changes. That ages us. (laughs) Let's jump into the dissection. Our guest for today's lab is Dr. Dave Lowe. Hi, my name is Dave Lowe, and I work for Thermo Fisher Scientific, and I am head of research and development in our transplant diagnostics business. Thermo Fisher is a supplier of laboratory equipment and supplies. Me and Zakia know them very well (laughs) from all of our years in the lab. Their transplant diagnostics business focuses on developing and producing products with applications in both the clinical and the research side of organ transplants. Dr. Lowe's specialty is in histocompatibility, which is a word that isn't typically used. So we asked him to explain what it means. It's a hell of a mouthful, isn't it? If you've ever watched 
a medical drama on TV and somebody needs a transplant and they run around and they say, okay, we've got a match, then that's kind of the histocompatibility bit right there. Histocompatibility means tissue matching, that the tissues of different individuals will be compatible. And by compatible, we mean that fusing tissues from two different people, so your donor and your recipient, won't trigger a reaction from the immune system. I think it's important for people to remember when we talk about tissues, tissues are just superstructures of cells. We can think about individual cells, but tissues are just a conglomerate of individual cells. And so at a cell-to-cell level, if those cells are not going to be compatible, then definitely those tissues aren't going to be compatible. And the thing that brings those tissues, the nutrients that they need, and the oxygen that they need to stay alive, that's the blood system, right? So you need your blood to match between your donor and your recipient. All of these things are physically interacting. You also need your tissues or the cells that make up the tissues to match between the donor and recipient too. And once you have all those things in your body, your immune system may recognize that donor tissue, and in the case of a transfusion, donor blood, and say, okay, I'm not going to attack it. Essentially, that's what histocompatibility is. They get together and they get along. Dr. Lowe's laboratory essentially develops and provides the tools that labs use to figure out how risky a transplant would be for each patient and how easy it would be to get them a transplant. So histocompatibility has multiple components. And one way that we already think about compatibility is in blood type. So A, B, O, and then A, B, and O can be positive or negative. Blood type compatibility is certainly important for transplants, but there's a lot more to it. With transplants, compatibility or being a match is really framed in the context of the HLA system or human leukocyte antigens. And that's all about tissue matching. When we hear people talk about getting a match or not being a match, we're really talking about these specific antigens. And what they are, are proteins that are present on pretty much all of our cells and tissues, but they're highly diverse. Some of them are very common and some of them are incredibly rare. So if a patient is unfortunate enough to have an incredibly rare tissue type, it's gonna be much more difficult to get that patient a donor. Another main factor in histocompatibility is antibodies. And we've talked a lot about antibodies before in various different contexts. Most recently, we talked about it in Lab 47 when Mm. we explored the immune system. And in that context, we talked about antibodies really being these protectors to shield our bodies from invaders and foreign particles. That's generally a good thing. But in the context (laughs) of transplantation and histocompatibility, antibodies can be a huge problem. Oh, no. Everything I thought I knew, out the window. They're part of your immune system, Mm -hmm. and they can trigger symptoms we would generally categorize as sickness. That's just your immune system responding. Right. So if you have a lot of antibodies, they can recognize a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. That means they might recognize your donor tissue (gasps) and give you a pretty bad reaction. So they're like, this was not here before. Yes. That is not us. Attack! (laughs) Yeah, you know what this reminds me of? What? In the Matrix, we're like, the Mr. Smith agents, like, they're checking constantly for your signature. Yes, yes, this is so good. And so if you come back in, like, the same doors, like, they're constantly looking for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, they were constantly looking for Neo in the Matrix. That specific part of the Matrix scared me. That was terrifying. Mr. Smith, always in the same spots, just constantly looking for you. It was like a horror film. But that sounds exactly like what's happening in our immune system. Like those antibodies are just like 
Right. And, and but really, it's great for your body if you have a foreign invader, a low level of virus or a low level of bacteria. Mr. Smith immune system is constantly looking, constantly finding them, reading those green little characters scrolling down through your blood system. OK, mm. it's great to have antibodies looking for things on the surface of a bacterial cell or things yeah. on the surface of a virus. Uh, not so great if those things appear on the surface of a donor tissue, right? Right. They don't know those antigens, so they're like, yo, we got to get them out of here. And your antigens are defenseless, essentially. Yeah, they're just things that they don't recognize. They say, hey, this is not part of the code. So the antigens, they can't even do the Matrix thing that Neo yeah, was doing. Yeah, they can't do the Sierra. You know, <laughs> Sierra was able to go back like that to do the Neo and yeah. Trinity thing back. She's the only one. Those antigens are not doing that, bruh. I remember trying to do that in high school. I was Oof. close. <laughs> really? I was a different human being back then. <laughs> Not so different. <laughs> Just different mobility. <laughs> That's one thing that we find is on our transplant waiting lists, the more antibodies you have, the harder it is for you to get a transplant. And usually that means you will wait longer. So why would somebody have more antibodies than someone else? How do we even get the antibodies? We asked Dr. Lowe how people who are on the waiting list for a transplant got so many antibodies that made them have to be on the waiting list for so long. Dr. Lowe says that there are three main ways. And the first is, if you have a previous transplant, and quite often our patients, when they have these previous transplants, they'll form antibodies against some of those HLA. And then the antibodies persist basically almost for the rest of that patient's life. So if you're then faced with a patient who has antibodies to HLA, all it does is it further reduces the number of potential donors for that patient. So if you have a previous transplant, remember, that's cells that make up multiple different structures and that forms a tissue. That previous transplant will have antigens from the donor. And so your body naturally, your immune system will make antibodies to that transplant. So now you have the antibodies that you already had that were part of your immune system, plus a new subset that have developed in response to your first transplant. So when it's time to get another transplant, you have an expanded set of antibodies, which could increase the likelihood that you would have a reaction. Mm. So is there a critical mass of antibodies where once it gets to that amount that your body automatically starts to react? I think that's a very good question, TT. It is, I think, two things. So it is volume of antibody and type of antibody. So uh. you could have a variety of different types of antibodies, but if some of them are lower in number, it's less likely that you will have a strong immune reaction. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. The next problem that some patients may run into that will cause them to have more antibodies, which makes it difficult for them to receive a transplant, is if they've had a blood transfusion. A lot of transplant patients get transfused quite a lot. And if there are cells in the transfused units that express HLA that is different, then there's a possibility in that way they can form antibodies as well. So a transfusion is having blood from a donor and putting it into a recipient. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about blood, you may just think, oh, red liquid, but it's not. It has cells in it and those cells have antigens on their surface. Mm -hmm. So if I am a recipient and I initially didn't have antibodies that would react to those antigens that are on the surface of those cells in my transfusion, there are components of my immune system that will recognize those antigens and begin to make antibodies. Mm -hmm. So now my antibody profile is expanded 
because my immune system has detected these other antigens and now I have antibodies against those antigens plus whatever antibodies I initially had. Another way that folks can acquire antibodies that might keep them from being able to receive an organ transplant is a really tricky reason. And that is because your antibody profile can expand through giving birth. That sounds really wild, right? Yes. But basically, you have to think of when a baby is born. Mm, Magical times. Yeah. If a baby is born, the baby is not your clone. Mm -hmm. So it's going to have half the genetic information from the other parent. Mm-hmm. And if that genetic signature causes the baby to express antigens that the birthing parent doesn't already have, as soon as that parent is given birth, their skin, their womb, all of that is in contact with new antigens. We talked about that. Right? And so mm-hmm. then that immune system is like, hey, here's some foreign particles I've never seen. This wasn't with me before. And so at that moment, the birthing parent's immune system makes antibodies to those antigens that are on the baby that came from the father that don't match with the birthing parents' antigens that they already had. Now, let's go back to early genetics. We know that when a parent births a child, it is not a clone. The other thing we know is that siblings are not clones. So every time there's a new birth, there's a new possibility of the birthing parent generating antibodies in response to the baby. So let's say you are a parent of three You've birthed three children. You are going up for a kidney transplant. Mm -hmm. And they may say, have you ever had a blood transfusion? No. Have you ever had a previous transplant? No. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had kids? And it's like, whoa. And, you know, your antibody profile could be off the charts because you've been exposed. That's so tough. Wow. So it's really tricky, you know? So if you think about that, that feels like that can really increase your antibody profile. Now, here's the good news. This only happens about 30% of the time. So only 30% Uh, of the time do we see this type of antibody response after birth. mm, But it's good to know. Yeah, it's good to know about that. Is this something that we should be testing ourselves for or getting tested for? Or is that like... Not until it's time to have a transplant. Okay. So we've talked about three main ways someone can get antibodies that makes it harder for them to match with a donor, like previous transplants, blood transfusion, and giving birth. But Dr. Lowe told us about an even more unusual case. A patient many years ago who came for transplant, and it was a male. He was a really big guy, actually. And he'd never had a previous transplant, and he'd never had a transfusion either. So we were really confused because he had a ton of antibodies. So we were trying to work out where he could have got these from. And it was only just one day that he told us that he used to be a bare knuckle cage fighter. So so he'd been fighting for years and and exchanging blood, which sounds horrible, but um, he'd been exchanging bloods and other fluids, I guess, with his opponents. And he'd had a lot of antibodies. So don't do cage fighting if you ever want to get a kidney. (laughs) I think these are the things they don't tell you on Fight Club. Tyler Durden didn't say this. (laughs) (laughs) So after the tissue type has been identified correctly and the antibodies confirmed, the last step in checking a patient for histocompatibility is a cross-match. You would get material from the donor. So you would get cells and tissue. And you would test for reactivity from your patient. And if it's positive, then that usually means 
you don't go ahead. So I would often be performing these cross matches and it usually turned out to be at 3 a.m. because often transplantation happens when you can, when you have the donor. The cross match is absolutely crucial. Okay, so it seems like initially we're just looking at small things like the antibodies. Now we're pulling clumps of cells, so tissues, and saying, all right, are y'all going to play well together? On paper, you look good together, <laughs> but are y'all going to play well together? And that cross match is where things can really start to look up, right? The question is, you know, are you two going to play well together? And so I think a cross match, physically putting those tissues together is so important because if somebody made a mistake at the early stages of the antibody panel or if there's something that mm. wasn't detected, if you were to have moved forward with that transplant and they are not a good match, instantly the body will reject it. Like within minutes, seconds even, the organ begins to turn black. Wow. That's just how strong the immune response is in the body. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll get into another important part of organ transplants with Dr. Lowe, and that's immunosuppression. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. We're back, and we've been talking with Dr. Dave Lowe all about organ transplants and how important the cross-match is to make sure tissues will be compatible in an organ transplant. And I think that really gets us to the importance of another component of transplants, and that's immunosuppression. When a transplanted organ is rejected by the body, it's because of a really strong immune response. And this is the worst-case scenario. So when you have that antibody response that sort of floods onto that organ, the downstream effects of that antibody are, there are many different ways that that could lead to tissue damage. One of them is complement activation. So those antibodies bind to that target, if you like, that, that foreign kidney or heart, whatever it may be. And they kind of group together and they start this insane immunological cascade, they recruit lots of other proteins, and it ultimately forms a complex called the membrane attack complex, which basically just pumps holes in the tissues. And even though there's all of this testing that we talked about earlier for histocompatibility, most patients who end up receiving a transplant are not fully matched. They're compatible, but there is some degree of mismatching, which is usually okay. So we need to dampen down any potential immune response to help to make sure that that kidney or heart doesn't reject. But the immune system usually finds a way. So quite often the immunosuppression that is administered is really there to prevent the patient's T cells. The T cells are the kind of conductor of the immune response. So 
A lot of the immunosuppression is tailored to targeting those cells, and that enables you to transplant safely. It is effective in preventing the organ being rejected. And something I didn't realize is that once you receive a transplant, immunosuppression can be a lifelong commitment. Most patients continue on immunosuppressants for their whole lives. The holy grail is to achieve what we would term tolerance. So if you can get to a point where you can remove yourself from all help, so all your immunosuppression is taken away and your immune system is tolerant of that graft, that's extremely difficult to achieve. Once you receive a transplant, immunosuppression is a lifelong commitment. And there's a lot that comes along with that. Mm. You're taking a ton of medicine. Mm. And when you're taking that medicine, that means it can make you more susceptible because you're suppressing your immune system. It means it can make you more susceptible to colds. It can make you more susceptible to getting really sick from common exposures that wouldn't disturb most people. So it changes your quality of life? It changes your quality of life. Mm. And if you're not having issues with your transplant, it may be easy to think like, okay, uh, maybe it's all right if I skip this for a day or even just because it's difficult to keep up this type of regimen, you may unintentionally miss a day, right? You know how many times I miss my allergy medicine, even (laughs) though I know how awful I'm going to feel? Yeah. It's not intentional. And so can you imagine missing one pill in your, you know, routine and then having these things that you also can't see? We know Mm -hmm. just human behavior. We delay things we can't see. We don't put as much importance on things that we can't see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it may not feel like there's going to be immediate action, but that immune system is quick. And we see there's a lot of studies that have shown that actually sort of stopping taking the immunosuppression, really a leading cause of transplant failure, especially in younger people. I think that's something to sort of consider is that a lot of the immunosuppressive drugs out there, they're quite powerful and they have a number of side effects that you know, it could be seen as quite undesirable, you know, like excess weight um, being gained and hair growth and things like that. This whole process might seem like a lot, and it is. It used to take weeks to determine histocompatibility, but Dr. Lowe was telling us that their technology has improved and what used to take weeks can now be done in a matter of hours. And in those cases where it's a deceased donor, you've usually got much less time Because as soon as the organ is retrieved from the donor and placed on ice, then the clock is ticking. We have this thing called cold ischemic time, which is used to describe the number of hours that the the organ is placed on ice before we can implant into the recipient. So part of what we do is to make these tests as rapid as we possibly can. Both of those points, Dr. Lowe, May, are really important. That time frame for determining compatibility and the ability to leverage more deceased donors, those are both really important because the demand for organ transplants is still very high. Right. According to organdonor.gov, over 100,000 people are currently on the national transplant waiting list. And the bulk of these folks are waiting for kidney transplants. Currently, there are 90,000 candidates on the kidney transplant list. And the statistic that really got me is that every day in the U.S., 17 people die waiting for an organ transplant. And so when you consider all of this, you know, we talked earlier in the dissection about compatibility and how that can be one of the biggest obstacles to getting a transplant. But we both wanted to know, 
if that was the major cause of the long waiting list that we're seeing or if there's like some other issue that we've seen in other places, like, you know, specific types of demand for different organs. I think supply and demand is a good way to put it. You know, the number of people waiting on the list, generally speaking, they outnumber the number of available organs. And then there are the reasons that we've talked about why some patients may wait longer than others. So the patients with a lot of antibodies, they're going to struggle to get a donor from the waiting list. So they're waiting for deceased donors. So I think that's important to talk about as well, that in some organs like kidney, a large proportion of the transplantation is taken from live donors. So quite often it could be family members, a brother, a sister, mother, father, child. The people on the transplant wait list, you know, maybe they don't have a potential live donor. These challenges of supply not meeting the demand mean that scientists and doctors have to think a little more creatively about different ways to get patients transplanted successfully. So when I talked before about a lot of patients on the list have a lot of antibodies and and disproportionately high numbers of female patients, you have to get a little bit creative And how are you going to get patients like this to have a transplant? And there are things you can do that I think they're really quite clever. One is um, paired donation. So, you know, you might have a patient and they might have a lot of antibodies and their wife or sister or brother is willing to donate. But because of the antibodies, they're not compatible. So what often happens is they will enter into a paired donation scheme. So what they'll say is that, okay, my brother can't give an organ to me, but we're going to go into this pool of people, of patients and donors, and we're going to find out maybe there's a patient in there that he is compatible with and maybe there's a donor in there that the patient is compatible with so in its simplest form they literally just swap donors and then everybody gets what they need and if the patient is willing to accept a risk you can do some more high risk transplants where you have a donor and they've got antibodies against them but you use that donor anyway And what you can do is you can do what's called desensitization therapy. So we will treat the patient and remove their antibodies. So usually we'll do it by plasmapheresis. So we'll essentially hook them up to a machine and and remove components of the blood and get the antibodies down to a level where we think, okay, we're not gonna have a hyperacute rejection The immunosuppression is going to be enough to stop that happening. But once again, it's really important to note that for a procedure like plasmapheresis, they are removing all the antibodies, which, as we know from Lab 47, means a much, much weaker immune system. That's one of the downsides is you're going to remove antibodies that the kind of the patient needs. There's antibodies that protect you against bacteria, virus, whatever it might be. So you kind of run the risk of leaving your patient a little bit extra vulnerable, and then you're going to give them immunosuppression as well. So you can be double vulnerable. This is such a great point. And this is part of why it's so important that those patients who've received transplants have regular monitoring. For example, doctors may want to periodically screen patients to make sure that they aren't developing antibodies that might reject the transplanted organ. Whether it's regular clinic visits or new technology that allows patients to take these samples at home, 
being a transplant recipient is really a lifelong commitment. And in order to make this lifelong commitment more bearable, there's a lot of technological advances that scientists are trying to pour into so that it makes that commitment less of a burden. So we asked Dr. Lowe about some of the advances in transplant technology. There's been great advances over the last few years as we've gone from sort of the cells right through to various PCR techniques. And now we're on to next generation sequencing. And that gives you that deep level of understanding of the tissue so that we can have more information. We can match to a higher and higher level. And this is amazing. And now we're trying to say, okay, we can do it. But a lot of the time, some of these workflows take two or three days. So it's how can we speed it up? What can we do to speed it up? And I think that's some of the really exciting stuff that's going on right now is that, you know, there's lots of us working on getting that deep level of resolution as quickly as possible. So it's kind of a race, you know, where everyone's working on it. So TT, when we consider like that article that we saw about the pig heart transplant, Mm -hmm. the recipient recently passed away. Yeah, I saw that. But they're also saying they don't know what the cause is. And one thing that we do know is when you have those types of transplants Mm -hmm. that you're taking a lot of immunosuppressants, so it could be anything. Right. This was really groundbreaking technology, but it was kind of a one-off, right? Yeah, I think it's a really great start when we're thinking about the future of organ transplant. And so we asked Dr. Lowe, what does he feel is possible in the coming years? Is this the future of transplant technology? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'll be anything like accurate. I guess we could meet in 10 years or something and and see. But xenotransplantation, so using an organ from another species, is it's been around for quite a long time. There's been a number of high-profile cases that have come up recently, and that's got us really interested. And what I've seen from some of these organs that have been used is that they've knocked out genes that express proteins that are thought to be important in the immune response. And they've engineered those genes out to presumably and hopefully make things safer. And they've engineered in certain human genes. So let's try and make that pig, kidney or heart more closely resemble the recipient. So it's science fiction, but it's coming. It's here and it's, you know, it's really crazy. So I'll be really interested to see how these transplants go longer term. I think there's a lot we need to learn about how that immune response to that pig organ differs from a human and and what challenges we might have. I know that in these cases, these recipients are extremely heavily immunosuppressed. So it's not easy. I think there's a long way to go and there's going to need to be a lot of large human trials. Immunology is everywhere. Yeah. I don't know much about immunology, but I feel a lot smarter after (laughs) all of this. And I feel like the future looks bright for organ transplant science. I think it's really exciting. Like you said, it's bright, but I also am cautious. Mm. I think a lot of times we have the technology moving and it's divorced of this social context. And so I'm like, what does it mean 
for transplant technology. You know, as we start thinking about this new tech and until it's readily available for everybody, how are people going to decide who gets what? It feels like this technology and the implementation of it is ripe for abuse, you know, or more of the same where we see people with the most money get these things. And so I'm like, how can we do this better than we've done some of the other systems in healthcare? Yeah. But I feel excited about it. Like you said, uh, what was it? The ear on the back of the mouse? It's time to update the textbook photos. That's right. It's the genetically altered pig heart now. What's your one thing, TT? My one thing this week is a Dope Labs live show that is happening on April 14th at the Boston Museum of Science. We did a live show in Minnesota, and so many people were like, oh, man, I I wish I had known I would have come out to see you. So now you know. Tickets are free 99. You can come April 14th at the Boston Museum of Science at 7 p.m. There'll be a link in the show notes so that you can reserve your ticket. My one thing this week is the Citizen Science Project. I don't know if you remember the earthquake back in Haiti Mm -hmm. and what we consider seismology and how do we track all of these events. There's a system called Raspberry Shake, which are these small computers that allow you to track seismic activity at a smaller level. So there's a network of all these little computers giving us a worldview. And just regular citizens, you know, not institutions, are tracking this information and sending it to this hub. It's raspberryshake.org. And you can see all the different stations and track the most recent events, even really small events, at stationview.raspberryshake.org. It's kind of cool. That's it for Lab 56. Call us at 202-567-7028 and tell us what you thought. Or you can give us an idea for a lab you think we should do. Either way, we love hearing from you. That's 202-567-7028. And don't forget, there's so much more for you to dig into on our website. There'll be a cheat sheet there for today's lab and additional links and resources in the show notes. Plus, you can sign up for our newsletter. So check it out at dopelabspodcast.com. Special thanks to today's guest expert, Dr. Dave Lowe. You can find more information about Dave Lowe's work with organ transplantation on LinkedIn at One Lambda Incorporated. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Dope Labs Podcast. And TT's on Twitter and Instagram at DR underscore T-S-H-O. And you can find Zakia at Z Said So. Dope Labs is a Spotify original production from Megaome Media Group. Our producers are Jenny Radelet-Mast and Lydia Smith of Wave Runner Studios. Editing and sound design by Rob Smirciak. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Original music composed and produced by Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiura. From Spotify, executive producer Corinne Gilliard and creative producer Miguel Contreras. Special thanks to Shirley Ramos, Jess Borison, Yasmin Afifi, Kamu Elolia, Till Kratke, and Brian Marquis. Executive producers from Mega O Media Group are us, TT Shodia and Zakia Watley. <laughs>